Mark chapter 10, verse uh, 35. We're in uh, these final uh, phases of Jesus' ministry. He's approaching uh, Jerusalem, approaching crucifixion. We talked about the fact that uh, the apostles are astonished at uh, the um, determination that Jesus is demonstrating in moving forward into uh, this um, torment and persecution and ultimate crucifixion, which is, uh, you know, he's going to suffer and experience uh, in this. Uh, we read uh, in uh, the other Gospels that Jesus had set his face like a flint towards uh, Jerusalem. You know, he had that singular focus, attitude, disposition of, of going there and accomplishing what he had been sent to do. So in verse 35, uh, seemingly disjointed from the other happenings, it says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Listen, when you're asked questions and not given options, to answer any other way, you usually just automatically want to say no. You know, the high pressure situations, you know, I need your answer right now. Well, then never mind. You know, I, I need to have at least some moments to pray and think about it. This is very childish. It is very much what um, you would expect uh, from someone who's incredibly immature, who comes with these types of of demands. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit on your right hand and on and the other on your left in your glory. They're still focused on his establishment of his kingdom. They're still thinking that this is what we know today is going to be the millennial reign. They're they're looking for positions of power and authority. They're deriving their understanding from the Old Testament's statements about being seated at the right hand of power and being the servant on the left hand. So they're looking for the highest ranking positions in the kingdom. They're thinking completely earthly, politi completely politically as to Jesus' kingdom and what is to come. Uh, we should be very careful and be very warned that very prominent figures in Christianity even today are of what is called kingdom theology. They have the mentality that we are going to establish Jesus' kingdom here on earth, and then once we have everything put in order, Jesus will come and reign in that kingdom that we have established. Um, uh, I'm not that confident. I remember uh, which ministers are of that mentality. They're prominent. I do remember that. So um, as you study along, hey guys, and uh, you run into those uh, frames of mind and that thinking, don't be surprised. Don't be dismayed. Um, you know, especially when you know they are teachers that you've enjoyed, that you've listened to and been fed by, and then you discover that their kingdom theology. So, um, you know, just be aware of that and be prepared for that. So they're, they're asking for the right hand and the left hand uh, of, uh, you know, Jesus' kingdom. Uh, we're in Mark chapter 10, guys. Uh, just finished verse 
37, discussing James and John, sons of Zebedee, asking for positions of power. Um, Mark uh, chapter 9, so if you put your bookmark there and just glance back at verse uh, 33, uh, there it says, Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, Why, uh, what, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. It's interesting uh, that the interchange we hear most about with the apostles is this argument. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? We have other comments. We have other situations. We have questions raised. We have answers given. The thing that we hear most from the apostles is, I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. This is what they're constantly arguing about is this pride-filled, immature sensation of, you know, you guys are just going to need to step aside. Once we enter Jesus Christ's reign here on earth, look out, because I'm going to be right at his right hand. It's their mindset. This is, this is where they are at. So back in Mark chapter 10, continuing on at verse 38, it says, But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup? that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. So common Jewish phrase of the day, uh, drinking the cup and being baptized. And they almost always referred to trials, tribulations, difficulties, you know, uh, baptized by fire, we might say. We, you know, we're taking that from the words of Jesus. But this mindset of being completely immersed into trouble, difficulty, challenges, testing. Jesus is asking them in modern vernacular, are you guys ready to be plunged into the trouble that I'm going to face? And uh, you think about <clears throat> that trouble uh, Jesus' bloodshed began in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was tormented over the coming separation of what lie ahead of him in being uh, removed from that fellowship with God. He cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Certainly the arrest, the beatings, the scourging, the torment and the eventual crucifixion were all together. But the torment that is most vocally expressed is the separation from God. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's just tormented over that, sweating great drops of blood. Uh, you know, are you able to indeed take this? They said, we are able. Uh, don't we make bold claims when we have no idea what we're talking about? You know? Can you handle this? Absolutely, I can handle it. Can you accomplish this? Surely I will. <laughs> Until we're just running face first into the brick wall. You often don't know your own character until it's been exposed to you. And that's the way the Lord works. And that's often what the trials are about, right? We're studying our way through the book of James on Wednesday night. Those of you that have been here for 20 plus years are... Uh, sick of me talking about those opening verses 
where James says, Consider it pure joy, my brother, whenever you're faced with trials of many kinds, because the testing of your faith will develop perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you will be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God launches us into trials and tests because he recognizes the shortcomings that we have that we're completely blind to. We want to be useful to him. He says, okay, let's be useful. First, I've got to wring this out of you. <laughs> and then he shoves you headfirst into the meat grinder. Yeah, it, it is not easy. It is very difficult. And the Lord will try us out and test us in the process. He's not surprised at the outcome. We're the only ones that are astonished at our failures, astonished at our shortcomings. Do you, do you even know what you're asking for? Oh, sure, we know. We're able. We can handle it. Bring it on. Good heart. Great that they're, you know, raising these, uh, you know, desires. Right? Jesus uh, actually compliments the mind frame of wanting to be the greatest in the kingdom. You want to be the greatest in the kingdom? He says you're going to have to become everyone's servant to do that. He doesn't say desiring to be the greatest in the kingdom is especially wicked. He just says you've got it backwards as to how to accomplish it. It's through being everyone's servant. So he makes the statement continuing in verse 39. You will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand or on my left is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it is prepared. Now, what's remarkable about this is that they were baptized with the baptism that Jesus was baptized. James was the first to die as he was, well, he had his, it, it seems by church history, church legend, uh, that when they took his head off, they took his hand off first. He put his hand up defensively and they took that off and then with a second swing took his head off in the process. So uh, James was the first to be killed. So, so that concept of you're going to pay with your life. You're going to drink the cup that I'm about to drink. You're going to be baptized. I, I wonder as this response comes of, you know, you are going to drink the cup. You are going to be baptized if they don't get a smirk on their face. Because everybody's been arguing over who's going to be the greatest and they sort of Maybe look over their shoulders like, we're in, you know. Yeah, you guys should have asked first, you know, that sort of attitude. And and maybe Jesus, uh, total speculation, I'm, I'm just adding to, you know, in this, he's, you know, Jesus perhaps is heartbroken, you know, as much as he is when he looks over Jerusalem and weeps and wishes that they had been repentant. You know, they don't have any idea, oh, you know, they're perhaps filled with joy. Yeah, you're, you're going to drink the cup and be baptized. And they've got the ray. And Jesus, I suspect, was heartbroken because they didn't know what they were saying. John was baptized. John, you know, author of the book of Revelation. What an interesting thing, right? Uh, I'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, you know, he said. And the Roman emperor, uh, on fairly reliable church history, tried to boil John to death, right? 
put him in a vat of boiling oil. You want to be baptized, John? Well, how about we baptize you right now in this vat of boiling oil? And he survived it. And the emperor was so freaked out that he banished John to the island of Patmos. You know, he understood that there had to have been a supernatural preservation of his life uh, to go through that. So, you know, these statements uh, that they would experience these things, you can see James's martyrdom in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, if you want to take the time to look at that. Verse 41 when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Now listen to me. Based upon everything we've seen, it is, I throw speculation in all the time. I hope you see that very clearly. Uh, I, I'm saying it's not a wild speculation. I don't think that they were displeased because they were more spiritual and they can't believe James and John asked this. I think it's much more the mindset of, oh, I wish I'd thought of that first, you know. Because that's how they're functioning, even in these moments. You know, if only I had thought to ask that. You know, I've been just trying to show off. I should have just asked. I heard Jesus say, you have not because you asked not. And I didn't ask, and those guys did. And darn it. <laughs> they have no idea what they're asking for. Okay, If you've walked with the Lord any amount of time, you learn that. You look back at those first few months. That first year, those first few years of your walk with the Lord, when you're a decade into it, 20 years, 30 years into it, and you look back and think, my goodness, what was I asking for? <laughs> what was I doing? Uh, the, the contentment that comes in the relationship with the Lord and the way that these worldly ambitions just sort of fade in the process so they're greatly upset with James and John. Verse 42, Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Now, you give uh, some of us an ounce of authority, and suddenly we're king of the world. We just we want we want to make sure everybody knows how much authority we have, and you know if anybody dares raise questions or you know we just bristle to make sure that people understand that we're in charge. It's it's strange, you know how overinflated uh, we can get with ourselves. And Jesus is saying that's an unsaved person's conduct. An ungodly person. When he's saying the Gentiles, he's saying the non-spiritual people do this. They have to exert their authority. They, they have to, uh, you know, stand up. I uh, think that I, you know, uh, this this whole, I don't know. Maybe it, maybe it isn't connected to the mask thing. I was in a convenience store. I think I maybe I've shared this, but it's a convenience store the other night, and a group, you know, group of people, guys, yelling at this young woman about how there's only going to be one line in my store. Everybody get over here. We're all scattered around the store. And, uh, you know, there's one register open. And as we've approached the register, we've all done that eye contact thing. Like, okay, you're next. Like, you know what I'm saying? We, we all have that nonverbal agreement of everybody sort of established their place in line. 
we're scattered around. Everybody's being really courteous. No, nobody, you, you can tell nobody in the store has an ounce of pretension. You know, well, the guy behind the counter is just like literally Gestapo wants everybody in one line. And he's yelling, of course, he's attacking this one young woman who has her little boy with her. So she's completely intimidated by the 280-pound burly guy behind the counter who's got a booming voice yelling, oh, there's only got to be one line in my store. Well, you know, being, you know, the soft-hearted, compliant individual that I am, I waited until he unleashed on me and then said, no, I'm going to stand right here. And he said, one line. I said, I'm in line and I'm just fine. I'll be standing right here when it comes my turn. And you could see the ease that that gave everyone else in the store. Not the defiance, the fact that there was someone there that wasn't going to let the line Gestapo dominate us. Big smile on my face, no problems. No raised voice, just no, I'm right where I need to be. I'm fine. I don't need to reorganize the store and go back over there. Some people get an ounce of authority and suddenly they've got to demonstrate to everybody, let's make sure we're not doing that. It was just exactly what Jesus is saying here. You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them yet it shall not be so among you listen there's a, a, a phraseology in that that you should take note of that sort of says if you are doing this you need to question whether you are one of mine it shall not be so meaning it's not a command of don't do this it's a command of if you're mine you won't be doing this because it's not my character. If you're my child, then this character won't be part of your character. If you're demonstrative and you're lording and looming, then you got to question whose spirit you are of. How is it that that has come this way? Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. Notice he doesn't condemn the desire. Right? He condemns the lording and the actions, but not the desire to be greatest. You've got ambition. You've got Christian ambition. Oh, you got to understand the place where that's accomplished is at the bottom. It's not accomplished at the top. You've got to dive for the bottom and be everyone's servant in the process. You've got to you know, take that lowly position. The great among you shall be your servant. Whoever of you desires to be first shall be a slave of all. For even the sons of man did not, or excuse me, the son of man, meaning himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, I guess I'm bragging. Uh, we had a tour guide in Israel that kept exclaiming how he loved to work with us from Calvary Chapel because 
what they're very accustomed to from all of the other churches that plan these events is that they send the people on these tours and they have to get the people and organize the people and lead and teach and instruct and show the people. The pastor comes in separately, usually on a private jet, stays in an entirely different first-class facility, shows up usually not even every day, just on two key days where they speak at like three of the sites. The rest of the time, the Israeli tour guides are handling all of their people. And then back on their plane and away they go. Before the tour is even over, they have to wrap everything up, make accommodations for everybody, get them on buses and planes, and then back on their way home. The Calvary chapels they work with, the pastors come with their people, travel with the flock, are constantly engaged, handle all that stuff about their people and their flock and what's going on. Not lording servants. Servants. The tour guides that worked with us were just so gracious, so grateful. Interesting, almost all of them are Arabs. They're not Americans and they're not Jewish. They're Arabs because they've been rejected by both communities. And almost all of them are hardened Christians. They, they've found the rejection of Christ as something that they can identify with. The one who has been uh, segregated from the rest of the world. So here, you need to be the servant like the Son of Man uh, that came to serve, not to be served, but to give his life a ransom for many giving up of yourself, working for the body of Christ. Those in the church that the Lord, their authority over others, don't know Jesus or his character very well. Something to consider. Verse 46. Now they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. So a known blind man, so much so that they've put a title upon him, blind Bartimaeus. You know, I saw Bartimaeus the other day. Blind Bartimaeus? Yes, blind. Oh, okay, blind Bartimaeus. Yeah. The clarification of what Bartimaeus are we talking about? Blind Bartimaeus. Uh, notable in uh, the setting, son of Timaeus sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, I'm not going to shock us all in the room, but the phrase cry out is the sense that he started up with a vocal outburst that embarrassed and startled everyone. This blind man suddenly heal, hears that the healer, Jesus, is within shouting distance, he is not going to let the opportunity pass. This man understands my healing is potentially at hand. There is no way I'm letting this opportunity pass me by. He can't see. He just knows this guy could potentially hear me. And he starts bellowing. It shocks the crowd. 
some of the reaction that you see from the crowd is to do with that. Uh, how odd is it that they don't have excitement for blind Bartimaeus? How odd is it that they as the crowd aren't thinking, you know what we should do? We should find blind Bartimaeus, right? Jesus, the healer, is here. Who amongst us needs him? Let's go get that guy. Put these two situations together. They're not thinking that way at all. And they're offended by this man's thought and outburst. Have mercy on me. What a statement that is. Have mercy on me. Look upon my plight. Consider my difficulty. You've got to understand the heart of God. You have to understand the heart of God. right? God is often depicted as you know, this judgmental eye in the sky that is just always watching, lightning bolt in hand, poised, ready to strike, looking for those that would screw up and just smoke them, you know. Grease spot on the ground, whiff, whiff of smoke drifting off in the air, done. That is not God at all. In fact, the scripture tells us that the eye of the Lord does go to and fro throughout the whole earth. Seeking those whose hearts are loyal toward him, that he might support them strongly. God is constantly on surveillance, constantly looking, ever on the ready to be merciful. He wants his support. He wants to help. This man calls out to God with that mindset. He seemingly knows the character of God better than many of the people that are around him. In his desperate need, he has somehow found the character and the heart of God. I think many of us in this room understand that. The desperation of our lives has caused us to know God a little better than some, a little differently than most. So consider, so Jesus stood still. And commanded him to be called. Can't even really make out, you know, from an earthly sense. Where is this guy? All I hear is somebody, get that guy. Bring him over here. Clear a path. Let him through. You know, take the blind guy by the hand and, you know, get him over here is the mindset. Then they called the blind man saying, be of good cheer. Rise. He is calling you. An indication of how thick the crowd is. Jesus is stopped, standing still, making comments, saying, bring the guy. And apparently he's still yelling, unaware. They have to tell him, hey, hey, calm down. You can go see him. He's, call he's calling to you now. You're yelling. He's yelling. Just listen for a moment. Sometimes you know, there's something in that where we're so frantic that we're still praying our head off and screaming. And if you'd open the book and listen to the voice of the Heavenly Father, listen to what the person is saying to you at church who you've been sharing with, maybe you'll find that the Lord is in fact answering, speaking back. We get pretty frantic sometimes, don't we? You, you get sort of, you get yourself into a spasm and you don't even notice that he's been answering you, that, that every verse you've been reading in the radio station you were listening to and your friend who's been sharing a verse, you're thinking of a particular thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you've got your trouble in mind. Here, he's calling to you. It's time to go. Go ahead. Throwing aside his garment, 
uh, his outer cloak, that is, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Wow, you can end the sermon right there. We're going to go on, but just ask yourself that. What is it that you want the Lord to do for you? Maybe you haven't even asked that question. You know, Maybe you've got a very specific thing in mind. Or maybe you've just sort of been blasting your way through and not thought to stop and say, yeah, what is it that I do want Jesus to do for me? You know, is it something big, some illness, someone else's illness? Is it is it a depth, a relationship that you're lacking that you need? To, what is it that you need the Lord to do? Sometimes we, you know, we ask the question. We've talked about this a few times recently. You ask the question and you need to slow down enough to hear the Lord say no. I'm not going to give that to you because it would be bad for you. We're, we're just going to keep screaming, give me the thing, do the thing. Yeah. And the Lord is saying, well, slow down and stop. I, I don't know how many young people I've been, I've watched who are so urgent to get a spouse. You know, I just want to get married. Maybe that's not the best idea. <laughs> you know, did you just get released from profound bondage and sin, maybe you need the Lord to work on your person a great deal before you're ready to become someone else's servant because that's what marriage is about, is being there for someone else's every need. It takes an incredible deal of selflessness in order to enter into that. Being careful to listen to what his answer is. Because sometimes we go, give me the thing. And he's saying, no. And we insist and insist and insist until we fulfill the thing ourselves. God didn't give it to us. We gave it to ourselves. And then we have to live with the outcome. The Lord, very often, what he's going to answer, right? For Bartimaeus, cat out of the bag, he's going to give him his vision. But sometimes what we need is just the Lord. That's all you need is to know him and be with him and experience him and be taught by him and to learn and grow and find that everything you need is, in fact, in Christ. And once you've found your contentment in that, then your character is so much like him, then other things start to become available. We, we, we are not what we used to be. We are very much unlike ourselves and very much more like him in the process. What Bartimaeus needs is Jesus. Yeah, vision is going to be given to him, but what he needs is Jesus. Think about that, right? If blind Barnabas had never received his vision, but he received Jesus, right? What did Jesus say? What would it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? Gain your vision and lose your soul, right? This is my biggest argument against NA and AA and those self-help organizations. What would it profit a man or woman to gain their sobriety and lose their soul? No, you need to know who Jesus Christ is. 
You need to call out to Jesus and you need to hear him beckoning to you and you come together and there's your fulfillment. Does he give you your vision later? Praise God. But it needs to be Jesus. And then whatever else he wants to give you. What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni, profound respect, profound affection. Right? Teacher of the utmost affectionate response. Right? It isn't just formal, rabbi, you know, that sign of utter respect for one who is a teacher. It is the personal, emotional depth of relationship here. We hear Mary refer to him as Rabboni after he's been resurrected. Right? She thought she lost him uh, for eternity, and now she has him back for all of eternity. Rabboni, that deep love and respect, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight. Now, look, a few things right there. Immediately he received his sight. Um, <clears throat> sight is not in the eye. Sight is in the brain. It's where it all occurs. Um the the eyes the eyes are part of the brain so i guess i'm incorrect in that the the brain and the eyes develop together in the womb because they are one unit um we have surgical procedures that correct problems for people that uh, have been born without sight in certain cases uh, but it's very difficult for them to then have vision because their brain has never processed the signal that comes through the eye. And so one of the most common outcomes of correcting problems like that that give people vision is massive nausea and massive headaches. The electronic signal flowing into the brain and being processed by the brain is tormentous for the person that begins to experience it. It actually takes many months for them to work through the process to where they can function with vision. Like a newborn child, the fields of vision have to learn how to function together so that focal lengths are working at the same time. Eyes have to work in conjunction with one another to move onto the same location because the two degrees of separation that are going on need to be focused on a single point and at first they're off and in depth and vision and then you have to work eye-hand coordination into it to where the rest of the nervous system becomes accompanied with I can see but I keep smashing my hand into the doorknob and you know literally on the stove and all these different things People that gain vision this way often begin by having one half hour a day at first. They wear a blindfold the rest of the time. Take off the blindfold in very low light settings. Let the eyes adjust and begin starting to work. Jesus gives this man vision and he can see perfectly instantly. That's profound. The brain begins to process. I'll give you one more illustration. A group at Columbia University in the late 70s, did an experiment with vision because we understand that the uh, convex lens that we have flips the image upside down. 
And so the image is entering the brain upside down. So they did a thing where they developed a set of glasses that flipped the image upside down so that what's going into the eye goes upside. So then it's flipped over again. So now it is right side up when it enters the brain, which is upside down for the brain's processes. Have I confused you? Are you with me so far? He's seeing everything upside down. So it has a set of blinders on it. He can't see anything other than what's coming through the lenses. And within hours, they've got him working through some process where he can, you know, mechanically, you know, try to reach up here for the thing, but his brain is telling him that it's down here to the left and he can see his own hand movement. So he's mechanically pushing his hand up and, you know, he's working through some of that stuff. Their intention is keep him blind all day except for when he has these glasses on. Second day, he's improving. Third day, he's, he's still fumbling around because vision's upside down. And all of a sudden, he's, he's able to function. And he's explaining to them, I'm seeing right side up. I can see perfectly. The experiment goes on to where by the end of the afternoon, they've got him out in an empty student parking lot. He's driving a car around. His vision has flipped itself over. Vision is happening in the brain, not in the eyes. His brain is just said, oh, it's upside down. We'll reverse this. What freaked them all out after a day and a half of testing this was when they took the glasses off and everything was upside down for him. They literally, for a matter of hours, were asking themselves, have we destroyed this man's vision? And within a few hours, it corrected itself. All of that to say, vision happens in the mind. Right? We have the ability to... Correct the optic nerve, heal the eye, do things to fix the process, but only Jesus can correct this, right? I know it's my pet peeve, but I'll jump over to AA and NA again and reforming a man or a woman is not as be the same as being reborn, Right? Jesus saying, unless you've been born again, you'll not see the kingdom of God. We, we don't want to go through this process of all the exercises of men to accomplish the things we think a person needs to have happen in their life. We need Jesus Christ to touch the life and change them. Amen. Behold, I make all things new. He who the Son has set free is free indeed. This is what we need to see. In someone's life. Hasn't happened to you? Maybe you feel like you've been going through the exercises. The physical ramifications of I will force my hand to go the opposite direction. Cry out to Jesus. Admit your blind Bartimaeus. Ask for his healing in the process. And then it ends by saying he had been granted his sight and followed Jesus on the road. That'll make you a follower of Jesus Christ when you have been healed in this way, when your life has been touched and changed by Jesus Christ.
when your character has been changed, when your flaw has been corrected by your Creator. It'll cause you to want to follow and to serve Him. Notice how we go from arguments about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom and seats of power to a man who's simply touched by the Lord who says, I'm just going to follow this guy. Follow him toward his death, which also means following him toward your own death, right? Taking up your own cross, following him daily, dying to yourself in order to be his minister. We'll jump over into chapter 11, verse 1. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage, which is house of unripe figs, is what that means, and it plays into some of the circumstances here. So you draw near to Bethphage and Bethany, to the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has set. Loose it and bring it, and if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. Now, um, I hope you've had the blessed experience with the Lord where he orchestrates the circumstance and you just sort of walk through them and then look back and go, wow, that was definitely of the Lord. Uh, some of you are aware that my wife's father was hospitalized in Georgia. And we drove down there and ministered to him, which included uh, leading him to the Lord and baptizing him while we were down there. That's uh, miraculous, to say the least, and uh, quite a blessing. But uh, the things that transpired, and any of us that have walked with the Lord for any amount of time have seen this happen over and over again. But, uh, the things that transpired in the days leading up to that were really quite remarkable. Um, different situations that the Lord said to my wife, uh, you need to do this and you need to take care of that. And uh, wasn't any real need to. And she did them anyway. And things that the Lord had said to me, um, you're going to need to take care of this and take care of that. Even to the point where... Uh, some of the ladies were at the house for the uh, women's Bible study that morning. And uh, I went out and did a whole series of errands that really didn't need to be done that day. But had they not been done, there would have been a massive scramble on our part. Banking and bills. and Literally, as I'm coming back out of Ellsworth, I thought, yeah, well... My wife's oil change is close. I'll just go change the oil now while I'm ready. It's Saturday, you know. If I don't do it now, I might forget. I'll just go change the oil now, you know, and come back to the house with just that sense of everything is all, you know, no, no concept of my wife's going to get a phone call and we're going to have to make a decision in, in an hour about us leaving to the point where an hour and a half later, we're packed and we're on the road and we're headed to Georgia. You know, drove all the way to Delaware uh, that first day. Uh, the Lord orchestrates things. When we say 
to the Lord, I want to be your child. My life is yours. There's a very positive aspect to doing that. Where he will take the opportunity to say to us, I want you to do certain things. And if you become sensitive to the leading of the Lord and you just obey them, there's a great benefit in the process. I want you guys to go into town and you're going to find this particular situation and the gospels you know tell us you're going to see a man carrying a water picture follow him he'll take you up to the room where we're going to have the last supper and the lord orchestrates circumstances you know one of the first really big experiences i had several but one of the first really big ones i had first dedicated my life to the lord and the lord opened opportunities and i started leading a bible study at job corps in bangor at the time it was housed at hassan college remember that and so uh, I, I would go over there, meet with a few students, and we just it wasn't even like I was, you know, a, a you know pastor or anything. It was more like gathering friends together, and we would just, I we would I would just inspire to you know let's get in the word, let's read, and you know there would be non-believers that came and everything. There was a ministry opportunity, and uh, we do it every week. Go over and do Bible studies at Job Corps. So I, I, I drove over on this one particular night. And arrived there and uh, met with my friend Mike and uh, we went and talked to a few people and they weren't available and we go back to his room and we're trying to share with people and invite people and nobody's coming and it's just a total wash of an evening like we're not going to have Bible study as far as inviting others in he and I had been in the word and so I said to Mike you know what do you what do you think about like just let's go downtown. Let's go downtown in Bangor, and we'll we'll just try to street witness. We'll just we'll we'll just strike up conversations and see if we can engage people in the word. We did this, you know, every now and then. So okay, we jump in my car and we drive downtown, and neither one of us even thought for a moment about how cold it was. It was late in the fall, and so uh, we park on Main Street and we get out, and the wind meets us, and right away we're like, oh, this was a bad idea, man. And so we're determined, and we trek along, and everybody else is experiencing the same cold we are. So nobody's just hanging out and mingling. They're just, if they're out at all, they're just on a move, getting into a store, getting back to their car. Nobody's conversational, right? So we've walked up uh, Central Street and taken a ride onto Exchange Street, and now our face and our fingers are numb. And I just say to Mike, this was a bad idea. We need to go back to the car. So we turn around 180 degrees on our heels and we head back towards Central Street. And as we turn onto Central Street, straight across from us, coming right at us on exchange, are four young men. They're across the street. And as they turn, we turn. So we're walking parallel on opposite sides of the street. And one of them's being really boisterous about, yeah, so it's like a book of the Bible. And there are these angels and like 100-pound hailstones falling out of the sky. And I don't know what it's all about. It's like the end of the earth or something. And I look at Mike like, are you kidding me? And Mike says, that must be the conversation we're supposed to have. So we beeline straight across the street. And I just march up and say, do you guys know what you're talking about? And no, we have no idea what we're talking about. And the one who was being boisterous says, it's some show my grandmother was watching, and it's all about the end of the world or something. I said, well, what you're talking about is the book of Revelation out of the Bible. They're all astonished. Do you know about it, they're asking me? Yeah, actually, I have it right here. I open my Bible up, and we begin to talk. We spend four hours on the corner 
of Main Street and State Street. The cops have stopped repeatedly. Like, everything's still okay, man. You know I end up leading two of them to Christ. One of them is the disciple of a witch who's there. He's been teaching him of the church of Wicca. And I'm able to correct him and separate him emotionally and spiritually from, and he's telling me, when I leave here, I'm going back uh, to speak to my aunt, who's a Christian, who's been trying to tell me these things. But they bowed their heads. The other two that didn't want to were respectful. The two that wanted to bowed their heads and received the Lord there on the street corner. The Lord orchestrates our circumstances if we will cooperate with him. If it isn't because, you know, one person is more special than another person. It's if you'll be an empty vessel, will you let the Lord work in your life? Will you let him orchestrate your footsteps, orchestrate your conversations? Will you respond when you see the conversation that's an open invitation to you? This situation here is going to unfold and we'll look at it next week, but it's going to be one of the biggest moments in Jesus' entire earthly ministry has been orchestrated by the Lord that they would be cooperative in going to just get a donkey that they're supposed to get. You never know how big the circumstances are. You know, it's, it's a relatively unknown Sunday school teacher that led Billy Graham to the Lord. Right, not many other huge credentials to their name, but by leading Billy to the Lord, think about the millions that profess faith in Jesus Christ based upon that. You know, maybe that's our purpose: is to just be the apostle that finds the right donkey. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Maybe we don't have to be seated at the right hand or seated at the left hand or have some grandiose place. Humility, willingness to serve, willingness to be used by our master. Amen.